0: Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Coming up on today's show, we meet the woman drawing connections between Emilia Romagna and Japan.
1: On our table, we find the same things
0: cooked in a different way. And this is the tradition. This is the history also in the program, we find out how to secure a table at top restaurants around the world.
2: Everything we're building is how to make sure the customer has the best experience and how do we make sure that the restaurant can operate with the most efficiency and get the most margin. So that's how we're looking at the whole space is making sure everything's a win-win experience.
0: Plus, we visit a Canadian hotel with a bountiful vegetable garden. All that here in a menu on Monaco Radio. Much as they might feel very different, there is more that brings Italian and Japanese cuisine together than meets the eye. The countries may be on opposite ends of the earth, but they share a commitment to letting ingredients sing on a plate and a preference for simple recipes done right. For restaurateur Kika Vancini, the comparison is particularly relevant when it comes to the food of Emilia Romagna. Her latest venture, Ailime, in a northern Italian city of Turin, brings together dishes and tipples from her home region and Japan. It's not so much about fusion cuisine, but finding the parallels between the rich, deep flavours of bolognese and parmesan with salty seaweed and ramen broth. I sat down with her at the restaurant to find out what she means when she says her kitchen has an Italian mood, but a Japanese attitude.
1: A is an idea, is a real dream. It's the match of my past and present, my passion about uh, the traditional food and traditional beverage across uh, Italian and Japan. In the middle, we can find uh, umami. And is a taste we can find in the middle of our thought and um, in the middle of my heart. <laughs> now Israel is a place in Turin where we can find uh, music, Japanese music, uh, traditional Japanese music, Italian music, Italian musician, and Japanese musician too. And we can find um, wine, natural wine, in particular wine from uh, Emilia-Romagna, because Aileme is the Emilia right in reverse. I'm from Emilia, and I was born in a restaurant. My family had a restaurant for... um, I don't know, 22 years, and my bed was in the kitchen. Emilia is the focus in the wine and the food, and we can find other wine across the universe, across the boundaries of Italia, like uh, French, like Spanish, uh, like Australian, New Zealand wine, California, South America, and sake too.
0: What I think is interesting about this place is that it's not really about fusion cuisine. It's more about understanding what things do Italian and specifically Emilian cuisine have in common with Japanese cuisine. So where where is the meeting point?
1: The meeting point is umami, because we can find uh, parmigiano, like prosciutto crudo, tomato for the ragu. It's a fundamental ingredient, yeah, it's important ingredient. And in Japan, we can find uh, soya, shiitake, salmon. Is how Japanese and the people of Emilia-Romagna leave the table. I think Japanese talking about food when eating food, and for our no, Italian is the same. And we share many things on the table. In Japanese and Italian culture. If we take the shape, uh, no the the shape of the the maps of the Japan and we put Japan over the Italian, we can see that we have the same climate situation. One, Japan is a island and Italy is a peninsula. Peninsula, yes. And we have fish, we have mountain we have lake we have river we have many things in common geographically this is really important because on our table we find the same things cooked in a different way and this is the tradition this is the history of each country and i think this one is very interesting and in other things is how we live The place, like a restaurant or bar, full of people, sharing ideas, speaking together and sharing food and sharing uh, wine and sake. Our motto is uh, Italian mood, Japanese attitude. This is the
0: focus. How does that actually manifest on the menu? What kind of things can we eat when we come here and how do we eat them?
1: We can eat different years of parmigiano reggiano and uh, patato sarada. Frigione is very very <laughs> typical in Modena in Bologna. It's onion cooked for hours and hours and hours with jam, apricot jam and hot red. And at the same time we can uh, order yakitori. We can find uh, lasagna or tortellini and okonomiyaki, uh, rice, or ramen, and they live together perfectly. Because I can uh, eat marinated egg in a soy sauce and uh, waiting for uh, tagliatella, ragu. It totally balanced and it's like a narration. It's a narration between two countries so far, but so close in our history. For example, we have a history about farm, about uh, how to make uh, things uh, like cooking with heart, with
0: passion, with very consciousness. Have you been to Japan or how do you you approach sourcing the Japanese side of the ingredients? I'm sake sommelier
1: and I had a master January 2020 in Yamagata and I traveling in Hiroshima, Osaka, Tokyo, Sendai and in the end Yamagata for work in a brewery in Asakagura and uh, I find some product in uh, Italy at the big fortune because I have a seller directory to Japan and it's not so difficult it's expensive because it's the other side of the, <laughs> the world yes but obviously, for the meat, it's from Piemonte. But other ingredients like soy sauce, sake, we can make like Japanese mayonnaise. Yes, it's not so difficult. It's expensive, but not so difficult.
0: How far do you think the understanding of Japanese food has come in Italy and Turin? Because I think that until just a few years ago, there was very little understanding of anything beyond sushi. Yeah. Pretty much. Do you think that the appreciation has come a long way?
1: Yes, I think it's the new generation, thanks to the new generation, watching anime or reading manga. And yes, I think now it's different. Everybody comes here and half of the people that order Japanese ask I me, mean, why? why not sushi? Let's say it's not traditional sushi. Like the home cooking is not sushi. It's a different now, wow, yes, and, and it's not, oh my God, no, I need, I need sushi. No, no sushi, but you can find other kind of things and everybody appreciates
0: it. That was Kika Vancini speaking from her restaurant Ilime. You're listening to The Menu. Booking a table at an exclusive restaurant has never been an easy feat, but in recent years it's seemingly become harder than ever. Plenty of online booking platforms have cropped up to try and tackle the issue, but oftentimes they can make it even more difficult, forcing diners to book tables way in advance, even if they never plan on turning up. No-shows are a problem for all restaurants, and when the going gets tough, you have to make the most from every single sitting. That's why Mark Lothenberg had a different idea for his luxury booking app, Dorsia. From alerting the restaurant if you're running late to guaranteeing the kitchen a minimum spend, the app is meant to make both diners and restaurants happy. I spoke to Mark about what led him to the project, the pros and cons of technology and dining, and why this is a dossier you don't have to worry about not getting into.
2: The idea came from I moved to Miami during COVID and I was watching what was happening in this space where you know it was the only place that was open, like that in Dubai. So everyone was coming down and the restaurants were doing insane amounts of demand. But when you talk to them, you know, when I was friends with the owners, they would all say the same thing, like we're super, super busy but we were busy before and so the numbers really haven't changed just a lot more people are trying to get in but we have capacity issues so like the money doesn't change it's just like the amount of demand and hype does and that's when the light bulb went off and i thought back to myself from like the late 90s early 2000s when we were doing bottle service and bringing a lot of that kind of minimum spend pricing to nightlife and how that totally changed the whole nightlife world and and the the simple kind of thing was oh my god i just need to bring like nightlife pricing into restaurants but with a sophistication of Like real revenue ops, yield optimization, everything that like the hotel and and airline and the rest of the industries had. But hospitality never really figured out. And that was where the idea started from. And then we just followed the dream.
0: But how does the app actually work if I am a member? What's the experience like? How do I book? How is it different from a so-called regular booking app? And what kind of benefits do I get if I do use Dorsia?
2: Totally. Great question. So you know, we looked at this space as we want to build something in a premium space and like totally revolutionize all the other features and products that are out there. So how does it work from a customer experience? You know, we really, we really built a great UX on that side to get you the access to the places that you couldn't typically have access to. We partnered with all the top restaurants. We have the access right now. Our model is you just commit to a spend. So, you know, $100 a person or $50 a person or $150, depending on like you know, what place it is or supply and demand and what have you. And that money just goes towards your F and B. And then as we were building it, we really were looking at all the friction points. And we wanted to say we want to, we want to build the most premium experience that has no friction. Very similar to Uber in that regard. And I was always obsessed with Uber. So with Uber, the magic wasn't about just getting the car. The magic was about getting the car and getting out without paying. You know, yes, you pay, it hits your account later on, but you didn't have to stop and add all that friction and pay and the credit cards and stop your conversation if you're on the phone or what have you. That was the magic, get in and get out. And I wanted to do the same thing with, you know, the whole hospitality restaurants, day clubs, nightclubs, but it doesn't exist. So we had to build like the the first ever real frictionless experience on payments. You know, right now you, you book with us, you get access to the best places, and then you just get up and leave when you're done. You're not doing that awkward, like hand signal, waiting for the check. You're not, you know, the servers aren't dealing with the check. The servers hate dealing with the check. You know, I've been in hospitality forever. They do not like dealing with that then they have to collect all these credit card slips at the end and at the end of the night they have to type them all back in and the tips and all the rest it's a it's a terrible process for everyone involved and the customer winds up waiting 10 15 minutes and they're frustrated and they just want to leave when they want to leave so we started with that and and now our whole focus point is about like the full personalized experience so everything we're building is how to make sure the customer has the best experience and how do we make sure that the restaurant can operate with the most efficiency and get the most margin so that's how we're looking at the host space is making sure everything's a win-win experience.
0: It's funny that because I think it's quite a cultural difference in the sense that there are certain countries where it does take a while to get the check on your table and that kind of is part of the elongated experience of dining you know I've waited a half hour in Madrid for for the bill and it kind of you have to imbibe that in eating out so this kind of applies to different countries and different contexts in a different way I suppose you operate primarily in the US and the UK do you think that also it's been because these markets, particularly the the cities that you're operating in, are very businesslike when it comes to eating out. You know, obviously running a restaurant is a business anywhere you run it. But there are places where it really is all about efficiency and other places where you can wait half hour in a Madrid terrace because that's kind of part of what you're there for.
2: Totally. So I think, I mean, right now we're in London, we're opening up Dubai in, in four weeks. And then we're doing all the summer destinations like Mykonos, Ibiza. Monaco, South of France, Mafia Coast, all those summer hotspot destinations because we're following the member and where they go. So we have, you know, this interesting flywheel. It's like we we secure the best locations and those best locations wind up driving the best members to join our platform because we're giving them access to things that they typically couldn't get. But I think as we're doing that, we don't want to take away the hospitality experience. Our goal is to increase the hospitality experience.
0: What do you think is the relationship and the flip side of technology and restaurants? Where is the right balance?
2: You know, I think the right balance is, you know, I used Uber as an example in the beginning of the call. So I would say like it's like Uber to LVMH, right? Like create the efficiency, create all of the technology and personalization. That you get with a company like Uber with the luxury, the taste level, the overall kind of user experience, that magic that it, like an LVMH, or Hermes, a Chanel, these luxury brands have mastered. Like you can walk into one of those stores and you just feel different. Whatever it is, the, you know, that magic that they've created, you feel different. You just feel more special. And that's what we're building.
0: I wonder how this type of, culture of booking is fitting into the wider context of the restaurant and, I guess, hospitality industry. In terms of how perhaps post-pandemic, so many restaurants have become very militant in terms of having to book in advance. The opportunity of kind of rocking up to a restaurant and just sitting down isn't very much there, at least here in London. Do you think that that type of experience is kind of lost it's not happening anymore or is has it always been the case that getting a table in a in a very in demand restaurant has always been tricky or how does the fact that nowadays we can book online and you don't have to call feed into the way that we interact with hospitality and whether it's more or less spontaneous
2: totally look I think it's a great question for us we're looking at it in multiple ways we want to ensure that we don't lose that magic right we want to build that experience so you can book in advance, like you can book 30 days, 60 days in advance with us on a lot of places. And a lot of places do fill up well in advance. The problem with the restaurant industry was you can book these reservations for free with no commitment, cancel whatever you want. So people would book three, four, five reservations a night and then just cancel or no show or even forget. And the restaurant was holding all these tables. So the restaurants would have to just overcommit. They would, you know, if they had 300 available spots for the night, they would take in 500 reservations. And then just hope that people would no show or cancel and if too many people showed up you just sit there and wait at the bar and that happens to people all the time it's like your table's not ready i'm sorry it's gonna be 20 30 40 minutes and you know i just viewed it as like that's really not the best way of doing it that's the only way they could do it based on the tools that are available so we're solving that whole problem because especially if you're pre-committing in advance you're not you're not just booking multiple reservations and canceling. you've already committed and bought the ticket so you're pretty much committed to going, like yes, you can adjust. And we have a, a very great cancellation policy that lets people because things do come up. But at the same time, typically when you make that reservation, you're committing to something the, the likelihood is that you're going to follow through. And we're also building really amazing product where you could just wait to the last minute and, and, and create that spontaneous. That's where our paid membership comes in. Like it's all about the art of like spontaneity. We're knowledgeable in the space, so we kind of blend everything in together. So we make sure that we can deliver a a top-notch product.
0: That was Dorcia's Mark Lothenberg speaking to me from New York City. This is a Menu on Monocle Radio. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis.
3: Police in France have arrested a man for stealing 7,000 bottles of Burgundy wine. The 56-year-old was thought to have taken bottles from his various employers in the Bonn region over a period of 15 years. Following a further search of the suspect's home, many more stolen bottles were uncovered with an estimated value of €500,000. The case is expected to go on trial this summer. Cheese from the English county of Staffordshire has been designated with protected status in Japan, meaning that it will be safeguarded against imitation in the country. Japan has also chosen to protect other British food and drink products, including Cornish pasties and Anglesey sea salt. The UK government is expected to return the favour. And finally, a US man has extended the world record for the most McDonald's Big Macs eaten in a lifetime. Don Gorska, aged 70 from Wisconsin, has now consumed over 34,000 of the hamburgers, having eaten at least two every day for the last half of a century. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Kiara.
0: Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. Many chefs want to keep things simple when it comes to sourcing ingredients, and the easiest way to do that is by growing your own produce. Canada's verdant Prince Edward County, a few hours' drive from Toronto, is home to plenty of farms. Among them, there's also those that belong to Saul Corngold, the general manager of the Royal Hotel in Picton. His family farms supply the kitchen at his hotel's dining room, much to the delight of head chef Albert Ponzo. Monaco's Toronto correspondent Thomas Lewis went to meet chef Albert to find out more about how this informs his approach to the menu.
4: I am chef Albert Ponzo from the Royal Hotel in Picton, Prince Edward County. My avenue to get here was a little bit different than most chefs. I actually started off as a jazz musician. I went to school for bass, Humber College, quite a renowned program. And I graduated there and I was playing music. And as a lot of musicians do is, you know, they find a part-time job to help with their bills. And, um... I became a server and I started really falling in love with the restaurant industry and thinking that uh, it was something that maybe I wanted to do, like open up my own restaurant. And I, um, started thinking about different options of doing that and the manager at the time suggested that I should start staging or or working in a kitchen so I did that I started working in a well-known kitchen at the time and I fell absolutely in love with it and they offered me a job and I took it and weirdly enough I never looked back from that day on I just kind of worked my way through the ranks then I most notably was the executive chef at uh, select Bistro in Toronto for 11 years And it was there that I met actually the architects who designed the Royal, also designed Le Select. So professed my love for the county and all things county and how I was really thinking about moving here with my wife and my love for for farm to uh, table cuisine. And they said, oh, it's funny, we're designing a hotel there um, for a gentleman and their family, Greg Serbar and his family, and they actually have a farm too. And I said, oh, wow, that sounds like a great project. So they introduced us, and uh, that's where I met Saul Korngold as well, who was spearheading the management of the operations and the management of the hotel. And uh, we kind of hit it off and fell in love. So uh, I gave my uh, notice at Let's Select basically my my home in Toronto. And we moved here in the county.
5: And you talked about the farm to table, the allure of that yeah. for you. Maybe you can flesh that out a bit for us and how it all sort of plays into the menus you've created for the Royal Hotel.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think originally the way the farm to table kind of started was from a place of of love in the sense of my first child was born. And I think that was in 2009 and, you know, seeing his tiny little body and thinking, I really want this human being to eat good food and I want to give him the best nourishment possible. So I started seeking out organic foods and foods that were in season. So that's kind of where that love started. And it over the years, it kind of kept building and building. For example, I joined Slow Food Toronto and I... Got to work with so many different farmers and really start learning about seasonality and understanding that. Whereas when I first started cooking as an apprentice, I feel, you know, in some ways we were a little behind in Toronto at that time, though now I think we've really come miles ahead. I mean, you know, we have suppliers such as such as Edwin County Farms, like our own farm for the Royal. But we, you know, back then there was this new company at the time called 100 Kilometer Foods. And they really paved the way for introducing farmers to chefs and restaurants. And eventually I thought to myself, I wanted a hand at growing vegetables myself. And that was kind of where this idea of coming to the county and having a farm to table restaurant grew in my mind. But fortunately, we have Sorbara, Lucas and Nick and Kaylee, the team there that really does that. You know, when I moved from Toronto, I I kept because the hotel took a few years to build and I got to work on the farm. And I actually started to realize how little I actually knew about farming. And I think on my own farm, I made every possible mistake. (laughs) And it's quite commendable how amazing farmers and how much work they really do and what they do to feed our
5: society. I saw actually the van, I guess, as Edwin Farms yeah. like pulling in as I was pulling in. Actually, I didn't realize that was yeah. yours. Maybe um, before we get to sort of the menus and what's on offer here and what you've created and why, where those inspirations came from, what kind of ecosystem of farms and food producers is there here? Maybe where your own farm fits in or that just to give people a bit of an idea yeah. of just how sort of verdant, you know, this part of, the, yes. of Canada is.
4: So there's a lot of agriculture here in the county. There's a lot of farms, um, market gardens. For example, the Edwin County farms, they are roughly 650 acres. So there's organic uh, maple syrup, beef as well, like black Angus cattle, as well as uh, heritage varieties of grains such as red fife and spelt. And there are many farms here in the county also that do maple syrup. Um, there's of course many crop farms as well like hay and corn and I mean those aren't typically the farms that a restaurant would work with but there are many um, and there's also many other beautiful farms like Blue Wheelbarrow that does market gardens as well. Fiddlehead Farms and there's many to list but there's quite a a nice diversity and people try to also grow like special kind of vegetables or things that interest the chefs as well. Our personal farm essentially it's more of an apiary. So I have hives. So I started keeping bees a while ago and then I stopped because it was just too much in Toronto. And then when we moved here I started with I bought four hives which became eight which now is 26 hives so I supply honey to the hotel and to different places in Toronto as well like Hooked for example buys our honey in different places here in the county we also I'd like to say uh, source fish from this area so it's not a farm because it's wild and in particular it's the pickerel or walleye some people like to call it and it's coming from Lake Ontario. And I think it's some of the most delicious fish I've ever had. And uh, it's on the menu currently. So, you know, end of June, beginning of July is it's now the season for this fish. And a gentleman by the name of Peter Williams on Big Island, not 20 minutes away from here, he brings us this beautiful fish. And uh, we try to work with these people as much as possible. And it, just to kind of allow the terroir of this area to kind of speak through our menu and through the ingredients.
5: Why is it special, I guess, to have all of these different things at your disposal as a chef creating these amazing things?
4: So I think first and foremost, when I talk about seasonal or local cooking, why it's important to me, and I think for a lot of people I speak, uh, is that it's close. So it's not going to be sitting on a truck for many days and it's picked close to the point of ripeness. And essentially, not only does that taste better and taste fresher, it also has more nourishment, more vitamins. And I mean, food is meant to be pleasurable, of course, and delicious. But we also want it to give us nourishment and to give us health. So I find that is one of my main appeals for the reason why I love the fact that it's local. And the reason why I'm infatuated with this region in particular is because at one point, going way back before you and I or our parents, is that it was a prehistoric sea bed. So it was actually a sea. And what happened is it left a lot of minerals and a lot of lime in the soils, which in part, when a lot of the vegetables or grapes were very well known for wines here as well. And it adds a very particular uh, flavor or a very strong kind of deliciousness to the vegetables or to what we're growing. So that's kind of why I love this region. And in terms of the restaurant itself, I like to say we're farm to table for real because we have a farm. But beyond that, I would say the backbone of the menu is really an Italian flavored because of my background being that both my parents, although I was born here, but both my parents are from Italy. And same with the Cerberro family. So there's a lot of Italian touches there. And But I'd be lying to say that there's also many French kind of inspiration too because I did work in a French restaurant for a long time. I mean, definitely the older I get, one of my philosophies has become – that I don't want to adulterate or play with the food too much. If you have a good ingredient, really try to make it speak for itself. So if we're cooking with tomatoes, you know, it's got to taste like tomatoes. It's got to be clear and defined. It's an ingredient, it's clear, it's defined and not have necessarily superfluous additions. But you definitely want to think about texture as well. We do like to change the menu for sure because there's a lot of ingredients coming in also having a balance you know you don't want to change the whole menu because you really need people to come in and kind of have some classics or some hits that they can remember and it's not new all the time so it's kind of trying to achieve that balance but also when we talk about keeping it clear and defined we also want to focus on proper cooking technique and making sure that we are using that language that we did learn, so for coming from the French and Italian. There's a real air, a real feeling in the community that everybody's always trying to do, you know, just improve, not necessarily like anything was wrong before, but I think we're really striving to showcase what we have here and come together as a community. For example, we have so many, not only in Picton, but in all the county, we have so many restaurants that I think, I don't think we're here necessarily five years ago. I'm not, for example, across the street, we have Bocato, which is a lovely restaurant. Chef Stuart Cameron is a really renowned chef. And we also have places like Flame and Smith, however, in Bloomfield and Stella's and, you know, in fun places too, like Parsons as well, like the brewery that also has delicious food. So... You know we're not competing but we're definitely all together kind of hand in hand help trying to just make this better and and also trying to bring people in the off season as well because that's when you have a place like prince Edward county that's beautiful in the summer it's also beautiful in the winter but in the summer it has beaches people are off but you know we we're trying to expand and bring it up and have more of that love in the winter too
5: What kind of opportunity does that feel like? Does it feel kind of exciting or does it feel like a pressure? You're talking about this sort of gentle rivalry, I guess, or standards being really high already. What's that? What does that feel like as a head chef to really be able to, you know, make something that's both your own, but also stands a little bit alone kind of in this town as well?
4: Well, it's an interesting question. I think... I think I feel grateful. I think it's wonderful to have this opportunity. I mean, you're right. It's a beautiful building. I mean, not only the building, but our kitchen is is really one of the nicest kitchens. It is the nicest kitchen I've ever worked in. So I feel quite grateful and fortunate to be working here and to be working with the farms and not only Edwin County, but like Peter Williams and and all the people that we're working with. So I'm just sometimes I pinch myself. I say, is this really happening? Like, because it's pretty cool. So I'm pretty happy about it and to go back to the community there's so many wonderful beautiful people here and all the different restaurants and more that I've named and breweries and wineries so it's pretty special and sometimes it's nice having somebody coming from the outside like yourself to kind of remind us like that oh yeah you know what it's pretty special Prince Edward County.
0: Thomas Lewis there, speaking to chef Albert Ponzo. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune in to our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our sound engineers were Mariella Bevan and Lily Austin. Thanks for listening and until next week.